welcome this morning. Uh, if, if we're going to talk about uh, a, a, a very interesting uh, text, very interesting um, uh, phrase, and <clears throat> we're going to first look in, Gen in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, we have the story of the flood, the flood of Noah. Not only is it one of the things that the world is willingly ignorant of or dumb on purpose in 2 Peter chapter 3, the flood, but also creation. Why would the world be willingly ignorant of it? Side note, because it would, it would, it would uh, uh, rebuke the ridiculous notion of evolution. So that's why they're willingly ignorant of it. But in, Ephes but in Genesis chapter 6, uh, chapter 6 through 8, we have the story of the flood. But we also see some firsts in this, in this story. Uh, in, we first see the mention of grace in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, one commentator said that in the world full of chaff, God found one grain of wheat, and it was Noah. Now, this came just after Genesis 6, 5, that says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of the intentions of his heart was only evil continually. So we see the first mention of grace in the word of God, and it was towards Noah. Also in this, in this story, we see the first mention, or the first invitation of, of man to come to the Lord. To come to God. In Genesis 6.18, uh, before Noah builds the ark, God says, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. But then after Noah builds the ark, in Genesis chapter 2 and ver or 7 and verse number 2, uh, or in verse number 1, God says, Come thou into the ark, you and your family. God says, come to me. And so that implies that wherever we're supposed to go, God's already there. God wants us to come to him. So that's the first time we see that. And we see that, that invitation throughout the rest of Scripture. In Exodus 3, 24, verse 1, God tells Moses, Aaron, Adab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders to come up on the mount, but he says, stay back. Come to me, but stay back. In the very next verse in, in, in Exodus 24, 2, he says, And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. So God was inviting Moses to come closer, come in. In Isaiah 1, 18, God says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says, Come, come reason with me. Our Lord Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are but a few examples of God's in, in invitation of coming to where he is. But we also have another first in, in, um, in this story, and it's clean animals. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah, you're going to bring the animals on the ark by twos. They're going to come to you by twos. But then, in, in Genesis, in the, after he's built the ark, in Genesis 7, Verse 2, he says, of the clean animals, you're going to bring them in by sevens. So I, I, I thought that was interesting because we know that, that, that clean animals were defined by God as, as the right things to eat in, 
in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 2 through 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 4 through 8, but that was over 1,200 years after this event. So I, I thought it was interesting. Um, so maybe, though, I, I was trying to think of why God would call out clean animals. Well, I thought maybe one reason was when they came off the ark in Genesis 9-3, God instituted the eating of animals. So, you know, God has the inside scoop on the knowledge. So he knew what he was going to, to uh, uh, okay to eat. So maybe he thought, well, we need three pairs of the clean animals so they can really, you know, get going and we'll have enough to eat. I also thought, well, maybe the clean animals, they are of more use. One commentator said of this, you know, a herd of ox are way more uh, useful than a herd of leopards. And that made sense to me. So that, that could be too. But in this case, we know for a fact that it's clean for sacrificing. Because when Noah comes off the ark in Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 20, the Bible says, And Noah built an ark unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So, so Noah knew enough to take sacrifice to clean animals when he came off the ark. The first thing he did when he came off the ark, didn't build a house, didn't kiss the ground, didn't get all those animals out of his sight. He built an altar and, and gave burnt offerings to the Lord. Well, there must have been some kind of knowledge there because uh, Noah seemed to know what he was doing. Well, back in Genesis chapter 4, the Bible tells us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. And on, on the day when they brought their offerings to the Lord, he gave of the firstlings of his flock. And I said, well, okay, well, sheep are clean animals. Hmm. Maybe they knew more about this than we thought in, in, by the time we got to Leviticus. Maybe the roots of the sacrificial offerings of clean animals had its roots in Genesis chapter 4. But we know for a fact that, that, that it was, they were okay for sacrificing. So we just read that in verse number 20. But we also see another first at the first uh, portion of Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. It says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. That's the first time that, that that phrase is used in the Word of God. And the word savor means aroma, fragrance, and odor of soothing. But this, but this phrase was a way of describing the effect uh, of the sacrifice in human terms so that it could be understood. <laughs> One commentator said it proved that the Lord loved grilling. He liked to grill. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I'm going to say that. I, not true, but I just thought that was cool. Anyway... Not quite, not quite. The sacrifice had a sweet fragrance to the Lord, which was a, a way of describing that the sacrifice was well-pleasing and acceptable to God. Noah made the sacrifice, and God accepted it. He, he appreciated it. It was well-pleasing to him. But here in Genesis, it's called a burnt offering. Now again, some 1,200 years later, we're going to find out what the burnt offering is. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 29, verses 15 through 18, they're consecrating uh, Aaron and his boys. They're consecrating the priests. And one of the sacrifices is a burnt offering. And, and verse 18 says, And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. In the sacrificial system outlined to Moses, uh, uh, there are five offerings described. They're found in Leviticus chapter one, chapters one through seven. And there are five different offerings. 
Three of those offerings were voluntary, and they were labeled. If you go out on the internet and look up the Levitical offerings, they, it shows the five of them, but there are three of them, and they're called the sweet savor offerings. And the burnt offering was one of them. The meal offering was, the other, was the, another one, and the, and the, the uh, uh, peace offering was the third one. And the phrase sweet savor is found 34 times in the book of Leviticus. So God says, tells us over and over that these three offerings were a sweet savor to him. They were, they were a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance to him. We're going to find out more of what this means in just a little bit. But when we get to the book, when we get to the New Testament... In the book of Philippians, we've got the background of what this phrase means. It's something that's well-pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. But in the book of Philippians, Paul wrote to the church and uh, wrote of their desire and their willingness. They wanted to help him. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, nobody came to my aid but you. And Philippians 4.16, it says, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again to my necessity. Paul said, anytime I was in need, you came to my aid. When nobody else would do it, you did it. But how did Paul uh, uh, describe this? Their generosity? In verse number 18, Paul says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent, which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Paul used the imagery of the Old Testament that we, that we, that we looked at to, to describe the offering of their generosity and their gift. It was something that was pleasing to God. Their self-sacrifice, their voluntary effort to give this money to them, to give them the gift. Uh, Noah's uh, voluntary sacrifice of the animals, the, 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 the love and the devotion that it showed towards God because they were giving it, it was voluntary, it cost them something. And it was a sweet-smelling odor, but was the description Paul gave of, the, of, the, of this gift. Now that was cool. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but no place was this beautiful expression more appropriately used in Scripture than in the text that we're going to look at today. We saw that in the Old Testament, we saw that God's uh, God was pleased with those sacrifices and accepted them. But why? Why would God care about those three and about, this, about these sacrifices? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 1, Paul writes, to the, uh, writes the book of Ephesians, and of course in the general outline of Paul's writings, the, in, in Ephesians the first three chapters are doctrine, the last three chapters are practical living, how to put it into use and live the Christian life. And in verse number one, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. He says, I want you to be followers of God. That word followers means imitators. He wants us to imitate our God. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we are adopted into the family of God. We become his children. Romans puts it this way. For he have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are born into God's family, 
And God, and Paul admonishes us to imitate our God. We are supposed to imitate our Father. When somebody looks at us, they should see God in our lives. We should be imitators. I, when I was tell, talking to this in the discipleship class, I, was, I, I thought back to the, the movie Jaws, the first movie, um, and Brody's sitting at the table, and he's, he's going, oh, man, the shark's here. I'm, we're in big trouble, and he's, and he's doing all this stuff. Unbeknownst to him, sitting right next to him is, is his little boy. And his little boy, are, he's making the exact same facial expressions, the exact same mannerisms. He do, he's doing exactly what his dad was doing. And Brody's wife was sitting, standing there watching. She could see it, but Brody couldn't. And when Brody finally figured it out, you know, he made some weird face and did something weird, and his little boy did it right back at him. But that's what I thought of. We should imitate our God. We should, we, we should be a chip off the old block. There should be a family resemblance when we're in the family of God. But he goes on in verse number 2 of Ephesians 5, and he says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. That word walk means to conduct oneself, live. He says, he says there, and walk in love. The word love, of course, is agape. He says that we're supposed to walk in love. That is, love is the, is the Christian standard of daily conduct. That's how we should live our lives. That's how we differentiate ourselves from every other belief system under the sun. We show love one to another. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, when ye have love one, for, one towards another. That's how we differentiate ourselves. That's how we stand out. We love each other. And that's what we're supposed to do. But how are we supposed to do that? Where does that come from? If the agape love that we're supposed to express is already shown to us by our Savior. Look again in, in, in Ephesians 5.2. It says, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Christ loved us so much that he was willing to give himself on the cross and die for our sins. That's how much he loved us. And that's how he showed his love, by dying on the cross. But how does Paul explain it in, in verse 2? In verse 2 he says, And hath given himself for us an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And there's the key. There's the overarching reason why God loved all those offerings in the Old Testament. Every burnt offering, every meal offering, every peace offering was, was a picture of and pointed to the greatest sacrifice that was ever going to be given to mankind. And when God looked down and saw those sacrifices, he went, my son's going to do that one day. My son's going to do it. And it was, a, it was a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. It was a picture of what our, our Lord Jesus Christ was going to do. But we can see here in verse number 2, there are three important truths about our Savior's sacrifice that made this such a sweet-smelling offering. And we're going to see that Christ's sacrifice was voluntary, His sacrifice was vicarious, and His sacrifice was victorious. Voluntary, right here in his verse, it says, hath, Christ has, hath given himself, hath given himself an offering. The word offering means oblation, something presented or given as a gift. 
And the Bible says here in verse number 2 that Christ gave himself. Hebrews 9.26 says that um, he, he appeared to put away the sin by sacrifice of himself. Christ gave himself as the sacrifice for our sin. That's, and, and we see here in verse number 2 that it was because he loved us. It was voluntary. He gave himself an offering. Nobody forced Jesus to do what he did. Nobody made him do that. He did it because he loved us. He talks about that in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, what a beautiful chapter, talking about our, our great shepherd, our good shepherd, how he loves his sheep, how he, how he is our shepherd and he loves us. And, he, start, and he, said, he talks about it this way, starting in verse number 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of them. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus was telling, telling his disciples there that I'm willingly laying my, my life down for the sheep. Our Lord Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for his sheep, and he did it voluntarily. He did it because he loves us. Not only is our Savior's sacrifice voluntary, but it's vicarious. If the Bible says there in Ephesians 2, it says that he has given himself for us. For us. The word vicarious, Merriam-Webster tells us, means something performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another or to, be, or to the benefit or advantage of another. Substitutionary. In the example that, that, the, that the Webster gave, uh, Dictionary gave us was it said vicarious sacrifice. I went, oh, how appropriate is that? It was substitutionary. He did it in our place. Our Lord Jesus Christ uh, sacrificed himself in our place, on our behalf, and for our sake. The word for in that, in that verse means in behalf of, for the sake of, instead of. Our, our Savior gave himself for us. He took our place. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says it this way. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us. Another way you can put that is, but God commanded his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died instead of us. He took our place. Our Savior took our place. And it was a, it was, it was a vicarious sacrifice. And we see again in verse number two, he took our place because he loved us. And not only is our Savior's sacrifice Voluntary, not only was it vicarious, 
Oh boy, but it was victorious. Christ's sacrifice worked. It says here in verse number 2 that his offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-selling savor. That means God looked down on the sacrifice of his son and he accepted it. It was well-pleasing to him. Isaiah 53, 11 says, And he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God looked down and he saw the sacrifice of his son and he goes, Oh, buddy, that smells good. That was good. And you know what? It was so pleasing and so acceptable to God that in the instant our Savior said, It is finished, God said, That's good enough for me. And he ripped the veil in the temple temple in half. Why? Because God was saying, No more sacrifices needed. My son's done it all. The sacrifice was victorious. When we realize Christ's sacrifice is exactly what we need, and when we accept it, we win because our Savior wins. We have, uh, Romans 8.37 says that we are more than conquerors through Christ that loved us, through him that loved us. We are more than conquerors. We, we win because our Savior wins. We've already won because our Savior has already won. In, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, he, he, he describes the Christian victory this way. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory. We have already won because Christ has already won. In John 16, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, and he tells his disciples, These things I say unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Before he even went to the cross, Christ knew that it was over. It was done. In his high priestly prayer to the Father in John 17, he said, Father, I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've done your will. You've sent me here to do this job, and I've done it. He hadn't been sacrificed yet. But he told the Father, it's done. I've accomplished it. We've won because Christ has won. Now, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, talks about the the Christian's victory in chapter 2, in verse number 14. He says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Uh, we have, and, and you can see the correlation between 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We, we thank God because of the victory. We thank Him because of the victory or because of the triumph. And because that He's given it to us. In both of those verses, the verb is present tense. It, we, have, we have it already. We have the victory, and it's through Christ. Through Christ and in Christ. So we have the victory. We have the triumph in Christ. But that verse goes on to say, it ends with, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Huh? The Bible, he says here that we always triumph in Christ, and and he makes manifest 
the savor of his knowledge, the sweet smell, the fragrance of his knowledge by us. By us in every place. You know why it's important to live the Christian life? For this reason right here. We, we, every place we go, we should emit the fragrance, the beautiful fragrance of God's knowledge to a lost and dying world. Why are we still here? We are here to do a job. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are to be his witnesses. The others are supposed to see us, as Paul said, and see, and when he looks at us, to see Christ. We are supposed to magnify our Savior. And when we do that, we make manifest and we make apparent the savor of his knowledge in every place. We are supposed to do that because we have the triumph in Christ. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 15 and 16, he says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? So Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians here, he brings up the imagery of a Roman parade, a victorious parade from a victory in battle. Now, the Roman parade, they, they had, there were several elements to it, but, but a, a couple of the elements we see here. There were two groups of people, and there were those that walked in the procession, and they would burn incense. And that incense, you could smell the general before he got there. And this, and, this, and Paul's talking about here, he's talking about these two groups of people. One group is those, are those that, are, that have accepted the victory of the general and are willing to be under his authority. They are being led to a new life, and the incense to that group, when you smell that incense, to that group, it's life. It's life to life. They're being led to a new life. But the other group, there are those who have rejected the victory of the general and refused to be under his authority. They are being led to their death. And the very same incense that you could smell in that procession to that group was death. Same smell, same fragrance, but to one, acceptance smells good, brings life. To this group, it may reject it, it smells, smells good, but it smells of death. And that's what um, Paul tells us. But what's really cool here in, ver in, in this verse, in uh, verse 16, uh, verse 15, for, for, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Do you know that when you accept Christ as your Savior, that sweet fragrance transfers to you? Why? Because we've accepted the sacrifice of our Savior, that sweet-smelling savor that God loved, well-pleasing, We've accepted it. And so when he looks at us, he, he, uh, the Bible tells us that we are the sweet savor of God. He looks at us and we smell just as good. He accepts us and he is well-pleasing in what we've done because we've accepted the, the sacrifice of his son. Well, that's, that should make us feel really good. That should really make us praise God for what we have in our Savior. Well, back in Genesis, one of the firsts that, that I talked about was God's first invitation for a man to come where he was. God wants us to be with him. Jesus said, in, in, uh, I don't have it written down, so I'm going to go to it. In, in John chapter 17, 
Jesus, again, is praying to the Father. And he says, Father, in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He says, Father, I want the ones you've given me, I want them to be with me. I want them to be with me where I am. In John chapter 14, you pro- it's, it's probably something that, you, uh, that, that we all know well. But in John chapter 14, starting in verse number 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Christ wants us to be with him. God, the Father, wants us to be with him. And so the first invitation to, uh, to God, for God to invite us to come to where he's at was in Genesis. But I'd like to end the message with the last place that God does this. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 17. Now we've already, if, if, you, if you've read through the book of Revelation, by the time we get to this, we're five verses from the end of the book. We've already been through the full revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been through the tribulation. We've been through the last battle. We've been through the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been through the final judgment. We've seen, we've seen the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven, and eternity has begun. We're already there. It's already done. And at the end of the book, five verses from the end, this is what's said. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Folks, we're down to the end of the book. We're almost at the end, and God is still pleading with mankind to come. Come to me. Come to me. I want you to be there. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, He gave Himself as a sweet-smelling savor, an offering to the Father, and a sacrifice fully sufficient to pay the price for your sin. And here at the end, God is still inviting. Whosoever will, if you're thirsty, come. If you're willing, come. Come and drink freely of the water of life that's given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.